What's up, Salt City? Good to be back. I missed you guys. Um, oh, hey. hey. Uh, for, if you guys are new, you're like, who's this guy? Uh, my name is Jordan. I'm a pastor here. I'd love to meet you. I have uh, been on sabbatical for the last month or so. Um, and I, I want to thank you guys. Before I get into this, I want to thank you guys as a church for allowing me to do that. I know that's not necessarily a right to get to do something like that. It's, it's a privilege. Um, and I'm really grateful that you guys as a church let me do that. And it was awesome. Like, I, I feel like the Lord spoke to me in really personal and really important and really powerful ways that matter a lot in my life and hopefully will matter to you guys as a church as he hopefully will use that kind of in my ministry. And so I'm really grateful. Jess and I got to spend some time in South Carolina. It was 80 degrees. Yeah, South Carolina. Are you from South Carolina? It's amazing. It was my first time there. Charleston. It, guys, it's so great. Um, it was so fun. And uh, yeah, and it's warmer there. And I sat on the beach. And I know, uh, tough life. Tough life I've lived. Uh, but I, uh, I'm so grateful and I actually did like a little journaling exercise before I came back, just thanking God over what he's done in my life over the last month or so. And I filled like 80 lines in my journal of just the goodness of God to me over the last month, the kindness of God. And um, yeah, I'm grateful. And it was awesome in so many ways. Uh, but honestly, I, I said tough life. It, it was also hard in a lot of ways for me. And uh, here, here's some of the reason... It, for as long as I can remember, I've had almost this compulsive drive uh, towards pretty much anything, but to just work. <laughs> and, and I've just had this sense that I can't, I can't stop, that I've always got to do more and I've got to be more than I am. And I've always had this idea that my life has to like matter and have this significance around it. And in order to do that, I, I can't. I can't just stop. I can't just be. I've got to keep sort of grinding and, and moving forward. And I've had these um, sort of perfectionistic standards that that achievement has been rooted in for a long time for me. And I won't, I won't belabor this point because I'm actually going to circle back to it in a little bit. Uh, but when I had to just stop and get into silence with God and kind of face that about myself, I think it exposed some of the reality of what for me has been uh, really slavery for a long time in my life, where this perfectionistic standard, this achievement-oriented drive, this desire to produce uh, a meaning and significance within myself has been kind of a, a slave driver in my life and uh, something that, that I haven't known kind of how to carry that burden for a long time. And on my whiteboard at home, before I went into sabbatical, I, I wrote the, the verse, be still and know that I'm God. And I wanted that to be sort of the theme of that time. And, and that verse is one of the most simple and beautiful and inviting verses in all of the scripture. But for me, and I think I'm probably not alone in this, it's also one of the hardest Bible verses I know of to actually follow which doesn't really make sense. That should be so simple. Just be still, just wait on the Lord to come through for you. That's really, really hard for me. 
because I feel like I've got to take my life into my own hands and into, to change it, to manipulate it into what I need it to be in order to produce significance or safety or, or comfort or whatever that is. And I think a lot of you guys know what that's like. Today in Exodus, we're looking at the, one of the pinnacle moments in salvation history. It's the pinnacle moment of salvation in the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea and the salvation of Israel from their enemies through walking through the Red Sea on dry ground. They would have looked back on this story the way that we look back at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's that type of an epic moment in the history of the people of God. And it's a story of how God delivers them from slavery into freedom, the freedom of life resting in God. And he brings about that salvation not through the effort of the Israelites, but by telling them to sit and to be silent and to wait on the redemption that God has to bring for them. He told them to sit down while he stood up and fought for them. And that's what freedom in Christ looks like. And I think we need that word just as badly as they did. It's different slave masters for us. I don't know exactly what it is for you. I think the Spirit can apply that to your life specifically, whether it's achievement, whether it's friendships, whether it's career, whether it's family. But there's something that's driving you that you feel like you have to keep pursuing into that in order to have a free life. But it's actually that very thing that you think will produce freedom that is producing slavery. And God is offering you a way to sit down and to watch him be God, to wait on him to do what you never can do in your life. But that's a learned art in the Christian life. It's not something that you can just decide. It's this craft that you hone over time as you get to know God. And so I want to talk about what it looks like to transition a life from insecurity and taking your salvation into your own hands into one where you put it in the far more capable hands of God and you simply wait to be delivered. Salvation, today, we're talking about as remembering and waiting on the Lord. So we're in chapters 14 and 15 of Exodus. If you want to flip there with me. We're going to focus almost entirely on chapter 14, which is the delivery of Israel through the Red Sea. 15 is a song of worship after that delivery is over, and we'll read that, but we'll focus in on 14. So let me, let me catch you up on where we're at. So the Israelites have just escaped from the slavery of Egypt. God has brought them out with his powerful hand. He single-handedly defeated the, the most powerful army in the world, world through simply the word of his mouth and by making creation itself fight with the Egyptians. And the Israelites have escaped. But now, as the Israelites are running away from Egypt, God actually comes to them and tells them to do something that's remarkably counterintuitive. And he functionally tells them to go back towards Egypt. Now, we don't know the exact route historically, but we know essentially that God tells the Israelites to wander around in the wilderness and to come to a place where they'll get stuck between the sea and Egypt. And so he's not taking them on the most efficient route. He's taking them on a different route. And the reason is, is because God wants to demonstrate his glory through the Israelites over Egypt, which in this case will be judgment towards Egypt. 
God's judgment and his glory are not separate things. They're the same thing, especially in this instant, because God here will fight on behalf of these weak people. He will fight against the injustice coming towards the Israelites from the Egyptians. He will stand up and fight for them. And so God is essentially making it look like the Israelites are lost in the wilderness so that the Egyptians will pursue them. The Egyptians think that the Israelites are in a trap, but it's the, the Egyptians that are in the trap, set by God himself. So let's pick it up in chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that, he, that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So to summarize what's happening here, is the Egyptians are caught between the sea, or excuse me, the Israelites are caught between the sea and the Egyptian army, and they completely freak out. I mean, guys, they lose it. I mean, look back at this, verse 11. Uh, what have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? How dare you, Moses and God, free us from slavery? Like, what are you even thinking? What kind of a plan was this to set us free? And didn't we say not to bring us up out of Egypt? They never said that. Like, they are losing it. They are absolutely terrified. And so, okay, so what's, what's happening here? They had grown up under the terrors of slavery. They didn't have any autonomy. They had no identity as a nation. Whips and bricks is all that they knew throughout their entire life. And now they're free and they're prosperous, but they haven't learned yet how to live into that new identity of freedom. They're free, but they still only know how to live as slaves. And the second that they're threatened by something that makes them afraid, they want to go back to the old familiar life of slavery. And I want to point out that this is actually a trend in how sin, fear, and slavery works, is that fear leads to slavery. Now, in some senses, <clears throat> we've got to empathize with them in this moment. Because they are genuinely in a terrifying situation. I want you to imagine what this would have been like. The Israelites are standing there as a group. And they're looking out on this massive body of water that they seemingly have no way to cross. And they're without really an army. They're without any real weapons. And now they're watching as uh, this, their rulers, their, foreign, their former enslavers, are charging towards them to either kill them or enslave them again. So that is a genuinely terrifying circumstance. It's one of the most terrifying circumstances that you could be in in life. And so the odd thing about this is not 
uh, that they're afraid in, in some senses because they are in this terrifying circumstances. But the reason why we know that this is a deeply odd response is because we've seen the rest of the story where God, by his power, has delivered them from these very same Egyptians. And so what we know as the reader is that God is going to come through for them, that he can handle this. But in that moment, they get so consumed by the circumstances in front of them that they forget everything that's true about God. And so they look at these terrifying circumstances and they forget that they, because they know God in an ultimate sense, are completely safe. And that, by the way, is the tension of life with God and life in this world. It's easy to forget who God is and to respond like we're not safe, even though we're completely safe because we know him. So I, in my, in my least productive moments, uh, like to watch a YouTube compilation or two. I, uh, I never did any of this on sabbatical, guys, okay? I was super productive the whole time and focused in. Um, but one of my, one of my compilations that, that I enjoy uh, on YouTube, it, it's very random, okay? It's, it's, very, it's a very niche one, uh, which is people wearing virtual reality glasses for the first time and losing their minds. And it is, it is just amazing to watch, okay? So it's just a group of people that are like standing completely safe in their living room that put on virtual reality goggles and they have friends that are just mean but also very funny that decide to play something that is absolutely terrifying, okay? And so it's just these videos of people that are just standing there, nothing's happening, and then something frightening comes up like in the glasses and they just take off at a sprint and run directly into a wall and fall over, or they've got something in their hands and they start swinging it and like bash a shelf and break it off the wall. Or my favorite one is like an older lady that's sitting there and somebody puts the glasses on her. She doesn't know what they are. And uh, she's like, what is this? It's just dark. And then the scary thing happens. You just go, oh, you know, like just kind of this guttural like scream. And so uh, here, here's what's happening. It's, it's people who are completely safe who are aware that they are completely safe, but they're seeing something that's not real, that's scary, and they're responding like they should be afraid. They're panicking in the moment even though they're completely safe. And this is what I want to say is that that is the entirety of the Christian life. Here's what's true in Christ is that Jesus works for your good constantly, relentlessly, all the time. There's never a single circumstance that Jesus is not working for your good. God is completely in, completely in control of every moment in your life, which means that you, in an ultimate sense, are always, always, always completely safe. What's the worst thing that could happen to you? You could die, and you can meet Jesus face to face. There's you, as a Christian, in an ultimate sense, are completely invincible. That is the the rock-hard reality of your life. But we all have these moments where something that isn't as real as that reality is right in front of our faces, and we panic as if we're in immediate danger. We lose sight of what's real, and we act like that thing that's scaring us that isn't real is the thing that is real. But I want to say God, in his sovereignty, is the ultimate reality. He is the one that you can trust. 
and in him, you in an ultimate sense are completely safe. And so we need to learn that reality of kind of waiting on the Lord and trusting him. But the Israelites forget about who God is. They forget about the recent deliverance that he's offered to them in Egypt. And so their forgetting leads to fear, which leads them towards slavery. That is the pattern that we're seeing, and that's a pattern that's, that's true for us. So maybe for you, the forgetting who God is leads to a fear of being out of control of your life, which leads to the slavery of an eating disorder. Maybe for you, the, the fear of rejection leads to the slavery of lacking authenticity in your relationships and never truly being known by people. Maybe for you, the fear of not having enough leads to the slavery of stinginess and a lack of generosity. Closed hands with your resources because you feel like you have to protect yourself and provide for yourself. For me, as long as I can remember... The fear has been of not being enough. Not being enough for the people in my life. Not being enough for God. I think maybe most of all the times not being enough for myself. Like meaning my own standards. My own desires for my life. Not being enough to, to kind of live up to the character and the standards that I want to have for myself. And so here's the Here's the fear that Satan brings into my life. Is what if they find you out? What if people find out that you're not more than you are? Uh, that you're not really the person that you sort of want to perform to be or pretend to be in a lot of ways. That you're, that you're inadequate in a lot of ways in life. What happens when people find that out? That's the fear. And, and here's the, the slavery in my life is these perfectionistic standards, this, this constant sense of a need to do more, be more, drive, work, keep going, keep grinding. That means that I, I can never really just rest. I can never really just be. And it's this consistent sort of anxiety and worry about trying to, to be more. And that slavery causes a doubting of God's voice in my life. A, a, a doubting of his, his calling, um, it, like a, a timidity when he's asked me to be strong. So that fear, that fear of not being enough leads to the slavery of perfectionism and doubt. What is it for you? What's, what's your fear? What's your like virtual reality goggles? What's the thing in front of your face that you see all the time? So I actually want to give you a second to think about this. And I, I, I think it's on the screens here. So I'm, I'm going to give you a minute to think about this. Okay, like a literal minute. So just a forewarning, there's going to be silence here. Okay, I got used to it in sabbatical. Now I'm all about it. So I'm going to force it on you. And I just want you to think. And so if, if you would, would you just jot this down, either in your phone or in a notebook or something like that? And I just want you to think about this question first, what's a fear and anxiety manifesting itself in your life? 
And then how do you see that fear driving you towards slavery? So go ahead, take a minute. That was about a minute. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, that felt like an hour. Some of you are like, I need more time. Well, we're, we can't do that right here. Go do that this week. Spend some time reflecting on it. Um, so here's the question I want to ask. How do you fight that fear? How do, you, how do you fight the kind of the equivalent of Pharaoh's army coming at you? Whatever it is that's bearing down on you. The answer is you don't. You don't fight it. All right, let me, let me show this to you. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. So I want to point out three commands here. Fear not, stand firm, be silent. The commands here are... Uh, almost entirely passive. It's saying this is salvation, that you, that you rest in God and you wait for him to fight for you. So I don't know if we've got any wrestlers in the room. I doubt we have any current wrestlers. Maybe we have one or two. My guess is we have some former wrestlers, some high school wrestlers. So I was a basketball player. So me and wrestlers, we've had like a little bit of a rivalry. I think there's kind of an inherent rivalry there. But, but I now know and love a lot of of wrestlers, and uh, here's been my experience with wrestlers, is they just always try to wrestle you. <laughs> yeah, you, you laugh maybe because it's a weird sentence, but probably because you've had this experience knowing wrestlers. It's not happening to me as much anymore, but in college, this was like a fairly regular thing in my life. So Pastor Drake Epkis was a wrestler, and I went to college with Drake, and he's attempted to wrestle me multiple times, and I just don't understand it, and I just don't like it. I just am not, I'm not interested in this. I don't know why we're doing this. And so they just come at you trying to wrestle. And here's what I've learned, is if you try to get away, that's exactly what they want. Like, you are playing into their hands exactly. And so this is what I've learned, is the way to fight wrestlers when they're trying to wrestle you, is you just don't wrestle. Okay, dead weight is the key. They come at you to wrestle and you just go, okay. You just kind of stand there. They go to, to do like the takedown thing on you, so then you just sit down, right? And it's now no longer fun for them. You completely ruin it for them and they're, they're just disinterested and they just leave. 
okay? The way you fight in certain fights is you just refuse to fight, okay? This is a little bit of what's happening here in this text. Our temptation in life, guys, all of us have this this kind of angst in us, this this desire to, to prove ourselves, to justify ourselves, it comes out in different ways. But we have this sense of we've got to fight for our significance and our worth in life. And and actually what we need to do in order to find that significance and worth is to stop fighting and to wait and see that the Lord already has and always will fight for you. When accusation comes your way, when Satan brings accusations against you, here's what you do. You don't fight. Meaning, and there, okay, don't, don't take that the wrong way. Here's what I mean by that. Is when he comes at you and he says, look, you're sinful. You're unworthy. You don't deserve the love of God. Just like, yeah, all those things are true. I still have it. Here I am. When you accuse you, when you think about your past and, and all the things that, that you've done wrong and all the things that should separate you from God, you just go, yeah, those things are true of me. God still loves me. When you want to fight to take control of your life, to manipulate it in order to go the way that you want it to go, here's what you do. You just, you just stop and you go, you know what? I can't control my life. I'm not God, but he is God. And so you just, you just step back, you wait Because when you stand there waiting defenseless, God gets in the ring and he fights on your behalf. That's what he does. He's a warrior God. And that's what he did for the Israelites is he stepped in when they were weak and when they were afraid and he fought for them and he delivered them. And here's what happens in the story is the Israelites are terrified. They're losing their minds. But the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud comes between the Israelites and the Egyptians And he protects them. And while the Egyptians stand there unable to touch the people of God, a wind comes and it blows overnight and it builds up this wall of water. And then God invites the Israelites into salvation and they walk safely on dry ground as God holds back their enemies. And then they stand there and watch as God leads the Egyptians to the Red Sea, throws them into chaos dumps the water back on top of them, and in a moment defeats the enemies that they were enslaved to for hundreds of years. God did in a moment what they never could have done for themselves. That is a picture of salvation. And here's what they do is they cross over. There's so much symbolism in this. They cross from a life of, of slavery into a life of freedom. They cross over from looking at their fears in the Egyptians, to now looking forward towards the promised land. They cross over from sure death into life. They cross over from being stuck in Egypt to moving forward towards the land flowing with milk and honey. They cross over from being not a people to now being a people in God. There's so much rich symbolism in what they've left behind and now what they've gained through the salvation of God. And I want you to imagine the complete shift in helplessness and fear. The Israelites feel completely helpless standing on those shores, and they're terrified of the Egyptians. But in this moment, as God comes through for them, it shifts entirely where now the Israelites are confident in the Lord, and the Egyptians are terrified because they say the Lord is fighting for them. That's what God does. And the Israelites simply stood back and watched. Salt City, 
What are the battles right now in this room? Is it loneliness? Where you just feel like you're walking through life alone and you're unsure how to live in Christian community, you're unsure how to have meaningful relationships? Is it death and sickness? Is it sin, maybe hidden sin that nobody else knows about? Is it perpetual insecurity? Is it this sense that life isn't what you wanted it to be or hoped that it would be? What is the battle in your life right now? Learn to stand and watch God fight for you. Because he is a delivering, redeeming God. It's the very essence of his nature. God will come through for you. He will deliver you. Stand and watch as he brings salvation in your life. And yes, it might not be exactly what you expected it to be. It might not be in the timing that you wanted it, but it will be in the exact way, in the exact time that is best for you because God is a good father and he's working your good even through the chaos and seeming meaninglessness of your life and the pain in your life. God delivers you. Trust him. Don't give up. Don't let go. He saves, he always has, and he always will into eternity forever. God will be a saving, delivering God. It's his nature. Trust him, believe in him. See him and not the thing that you're afraid of. See the freedom, not the slavery. See new life in him, not the death that you've lived in. Don't go back to the former slavery that you've lived in for so long. Run to him. There's life there. There's life in Jesus. There's life found in God. So I want to just briefly hit, what does it look like to live in this life of like silent waiting? I still love that command, be silent. Israel, shut up lovingly with your doubts and your fears and your complaints. Watch, watch me, watch me work. What are just some practices, some ways that you can do that in your life? One would be intentional, regular rest. Time set aside to simply enjoy life and enjoy God, to play and pray. In chapter 16, following this story, very close to it, one of the first things that God establishes for the Israelites as this new community is Sabbath. Why? Because when they were slaves, they worked seven days a week and they had no opportunity to rest. They couldn't stop. It was their sole identity. But now, in their freedom in God, they can find rest and joy in him. They're no longer machines, they're human beings, and they celebrate that through rest and joy in God. We no longer have to be enslaved to the things that we were using to build an identity, but we are free to rest and enjoy God as human beings, not as machines. And so set aside this regular rhythm in your life to rest, to pray, and to enjoy God. The world will continue spinning without you. You are not holding it. So you do not need to try. You can just be. You can be still and be silent. Silence and solitude regularly in your life is another way to just be quiet before the Lord and hear his voice. Guys, I experienced this in some of my, my time off as I feel like I heard the voice of the Lord more than I have in a long time. And that wasn't because he changed and it wasn't really because I changed. It was just I had more space to listen and to hear his voice. I think we talked about this a little bit at the formation event in January, but 
our lives are like, it's like a salad dressing or something like that, that it's just shaken up all the time. There's stuff floating. It's moving around in, in silence and solitude, literally just sitting in the quiet before you spend time with God as you're driving in the car at night, shut off your technology, just get quiet is a way to just let everything settle, to just calm down and to remember that God is with you to reduce sort of the panic, busyness-induced way that we live life and to just be with God. Another way to be silent and to watch God fight for you is to be generous, to give. God said that he would give us his day our daily bread, that he would take care of us. If he takes care of the sparrows in the field, he's going to take care of us. And so giving away your time and your resources is a way to wait and to watch God provide for you when you give radically in ways that don't seem to make sense for you. You watch God come through. So following this, this epic salvation story is this song of praise. So God's, God's saving work induces worship. His saving work is not caused by worship. It induces it. God didn't give them a law and then save them, then bring them out. He brought them out and then he gave them a law. They were not worshipers of God, then he brought them out. He brought them out and it created worship. So I actually just want to read to you this entire worship song that the Israelites wrote, praising God for the delivery, the deliverance that he just brought them. All right, this is chapter 15. I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia and the chiefs of Edom destroyed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone till till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. We worship God because of his salvation. 
And just as we close this out, I want to remind you that this story is an archetype of our salvation. I want, I want you to imagine if you were able to come into the wilderness and talk to one of these Israelites that had just been delivered by the hand of God. And, and let's just say that you're walking with them through the desert, through the wilderness, and you're just talking with them as you guys go. Imagine that you just ask them, hey, tell me about your God. Tell me about how he's delivered you, what he has done. Here's what they would say, something like, I was in Egypt, in a foreign land, under an evil ruler, under slavery and the sentence of death, but God decided to fight with the king of slavery and death. And he asked us to stand in faith under the blood of the lamb and wait for his judgment to pass over us. And then he brought us to the Red Sea and we passed through God's judgment unscathed as we followed God's chosen leader through to freedom. And God, instead of bringing judgment down on us, brought it down on our enemy. Now through the deliverance of God, we are free. And so we worship him and trust him. And I'm on my way to the promised land. I'm not there yet, but I'm full of hope for it. Hope to live as God's chosen and redeemed people forever. That's what they could say about the salvation of God. And here's the key to that story is why? Why can they say that God liberated them in the Egyptians' camp? Why did God hold back the waters of judgment away from the Israelites and, and pour it down on, or the Israelites and pour it down on the Egyptians? Why? Check yourself on this. Was it because the Israelites were holy? Because they completely trusted God? No, they were terrified. They didn't know who God was before he delivered them, and they continued to doubt him in the wilderness. So what was the difference? The difference was that the Israelites had a mediator, a person who could relate to their cries and their slavery and their pain and could turn them into prayers towards God, but also a person who was connected to God that could bring the power of God down to defend the Israelites. A mediator who by the power of God could push back the wind and the waves and could bring them over from slavery and sin and death into new life with God forever, who would step out first into the judgment of God and pave a way for the people of God to come through the judgment into life, a mediator. That's why they were delivered. And we too have a mediator. Jesus Christ, a true and better Moses, the God who became man so he could relate to our pain and he could turn it into prayers of redemption to God. But the man who was also God so that he could bring the power of God down on our behalf. Who could speak against the wind and the waves of chaos in our life to bring us through into redemption and new life in him. Who took the first step into the justice of God and bore it on our behalf so that we would never have to experience it who pushed back the justice of God so we could walk through on dry ground and then brought that justice down on our enemies, Satan, sin, and death, so that they would be defeated forever, so that we could move forward into life forever, into the land flowing with milk and honey with him, our mediator, fighting for us so that God will never fight against us, but will always fight on our behalf through him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are our mediator and that you have rescued us, that you've delivered us. 
And God, I pray that you would deliver us right now from our fears. God, we get so consumed with what's in front of our face that we forget who you are. And that forgetting causes fear and we become enslaved. But God, even in our doubtings, even in our our weak faith, would you come and would you rescue us from our enemies? And would you let us live in a life of hope, faith, joy, and safety in you? God, right now, by your spirit, get rid of the satanic fears and lies and the self-justifying attempts, the, the grinding and the striving that we all engage in. Instead, teach us to just be still, to just sit quietly and watch while you fight for us and know that you are God. You will be exalted among the nations. You will be exalted among the earth and we will stand and we will watch as you exalt your name. God, teach us to trust you. And now because you have saved us, we worship. It's the only appropriate response to salvation. Help us to worship you rightly. In Jesus' name.